Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory, a podcast about. Well, political theory. Uh, I thought, you know, we'd start off the show by going through sequentially uh, the Bill of Rights and the individual amendments on there, breaking them apart and looking at, you know, uh, the way that they've been implemented, uh, their meaning, the different interpretations of them, that kind of thing, over the course of uh, history, both American history and uh, world history. When we look in terms of uh, historical precedent and the evolution of those ideals, um, it seemed logical, though, to start with the First Amendment, not only because it's the First Amendment, um, but also because it's, I think, a cornerstone for the American political system and also for governments around the world. It's integrated itself into political systems, often by the demand of the people. And today, hopefully, we'll get to talk about why that is and what purpose it serves in society and political theory. Now, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution reads, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people, peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. It seems to me like at the center of it, it really is an amendment dealing with the freedom to say what you want, whether it's about a god, a politician, a business, or whoever, or whatever else. Um, I just want to say up front, though, while a lot of the evidence cited today will be in the context of America, things like American Supreme Court decisions, American cases, American quotes, etc., it's worth noting that most of this is applicable on a global front. And I just think it's important that we bear that in mind, that these arguments transcend uh, the U.S. now, the U.S. when it was founded, and the U.S. Uh, in whatever form it exists in, I think, 500 years. These arguments will still be relevant, uh, the majority of them at least. Now, I thought we'd start today off by looking briefly at the history of free speech and its evolution in our society, and then going on to talk about the uh, the various interpretations, and um, I don't know, we can call them disagreements, in free speech and how it should be applied, things like hate speech, censorship, discrimination, school prayer, and so on. And then we'll end by talking about where free speech is going, especially in the context of a more technologically integrated world. But before we can talk about the future, right, we ought to talk about the past and about the evolution of free speech over time. Now, in 5th century BC Greece, during the Golden Age of Athens, uh, is really beyond philosophically, but in terms of real-world implementation, uh, the first time, historically speaking, that there are um, extensive records of citizens having relative free speech, right? That they could talk openly about ideas in the world around them. To quote the Greek statesman Pericles, quote, And not only in our public life are we free and open, but a sense of freedom regulates our day-to-day -day life with each other, end quote. Um, but all this so-called freedom of speech is called into question during the trial of Socrates, where the philosopher Socrates was put on trial for calling into question the gods of the state or corrupting the young with his radical philosophical ideas about ethics, his ideas on education and government, and, um, and so on. And Socrates was put on trial and convicted in a very close vote. He's poisoned and he dies. And the only reason that we know any of this is because of Plato, who was a student of Socrates and documented his trial in his book The Apology, which was in a lot of ways sort of a defense of Socrates. Um, by no means, though, was you know the right of free speech limited to Greece in the Maron dynasty, 
Only about a century after Socrates, the king Ashoka demonstrates a unique tolerance for all religions and people, and the Roman Republic had relative uh, free speech. But it's during the Enlightenment period, starting in the 15th century AD, uh, that free speech really roots itself into political theory as a commonplace uh, cornerstone idea, really. It's prominent Enlightenment thinker John Locke, who says in his letter concerning religious toleration, quote, the only fence against the world is a thorough knowledge of it, end quote. And I think it, that sort of starts to demonstrate the value and the emphasis that was being placed on the importance of a well-educated mass public. And Voltaire writes, uh, quote, think for yourselves and let others do so too, end quote. David Hume in 1742 writes about the liberty of the press, and revolutions like those in America and France are born out of these ideals. Certainly thinkers like Thomas Hobbes took up opposing ideas and attitudes and argued in favor of monarchies, but the overall uh, trend during this period was to embrace free speech, and it translated into many of the political ideas that we hold commonplace. But as the idea of free speech became more widely embraced and grew to fit more scenarios, so too did questions arise. One of the first ones, and most prominent ones, deals with hate speech, so let's talk about that. Now, hate speech has a really broad definition, right? You can direct hate at almost anything, another person, an institution, a deity, and so on. Now, what connotates hate speech tends to be the extremity of it. But there's widespread debate over what hate speech is. People like Pamela Geller, who promotes an anti-Islamist agenda and was the organizer of the Muhammad cartoon contest that was attacked at recently, as well as like members of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. Well, they don't consider what they say to be hate speech, but plenty of others do. So I just think it's important that we keep that subjectivity of the term hate speech in mind, especially because it'll come up uh, again shortly. Now, what I want to do is kind of present the two different sides when we talk about hate speech, right? The line of argumentation that says that Hate speech should be considered free speech in its fullest form, and I should be able to say whatever I like, no matter how hateful that is. And then look at the other line of argumentation, uh, which goes essentially that, you know, some speech is not protected, um, and that we should consider hate speech to be unprotected by the First Amendment. Now, to start with the line of argumentation that says that all uh, speech, even if it is hate speech, should be protected, let's start there, right? Because hate speech is still speech. If I didn't have the right to say I disliked something, then... I don't really have true free speech at all. As Oscar Wilde put it, quote, an idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all, end quote. Uh, Noam Chomsky writes, quote, if we don't believe in freedom of expression for the people we despise, we don't believe in it at all, end quote. Now you could say, sure, you have a right to express your disagreement with something, but there comes a point when it is too extreme and has negative consequences. And we'll talk about that in a second when we talk about uh, why a lot of people do feel that hate speech shouldn't be protected. I would want to say kind of two things in response to that notion that something can have negative consequences. Because first off, I would note the subjectivity of the term hate speech uh, leaves an open door for government to interpret what hate speech is. And that's dangerous to leave it to the institution in power to decide what ideas can be expressed. Article 35 of the Chinese Constitution uh, says, quote, Citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of speech, of the press, of assembly, of association, of procession, and of demonstration, end quote. But at the same time, China was ranked the sixth worst country for freedom of speech practice by Reporters Without Borders. And a lot of censorship in China is justified by labeling what people are trying to say as hate speech and likely to incite violence and pose a threat to stability. Government, especially with the tools that we give to it, can do a lot of damage if we leave them to abuse you know, uh, what hate speech is and prosecute those who supposedly, at least under the definition that they've established, said it. And I would note that that abuse that has the potential to happen and does happen in places like China is far worse than whatever small um, whatever small harm comes out of allowing individuals 
to practice hate speech and that that outweighs that sort of first notion that some speech that causes small inflictions upon others uh, should be the, the reason that we ban hate speech overall, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of the first reason uh, why I think that notion that some hate speech is too extreme and because it causes harm that it, it should be banned is because if we if we do have to set definitions and we leave it up to the government, that's so prone to abuse and it has been abused before that we risk doing larger and more widespread damage. Now, if we don't have government define it, right, then we leave it up to the people to define what hate speech is because that's logical what would happen. Um, then I think we risk doing equal damage, or at least that's the way that the argumentation goes. Tyranny in the minority is dangerous, and it undermines in many ways the basic notion of democracy, because then not everybody gets a say. Only those who are on the winning side do. Uh, you know, bear in mind that at one point, if we had left it up to the majority to designate what hate speech was and prosecute those who expressed it, we might still have some pretty horrible policies in place. You know, at one point, the majority of Americans, or at least Americans who had a say in the political system, that is, supported slavery. Now, if they had been able to claim that people who spoke against their belief that slaves were good was hate speech because they were the ones who had power and they were the ones who were able to set what the moral compass is and create, uh, you know, definitions for what hate speech is and prosecute those who expressed it, then they could have shut down the ideas and the ideals that were arguing in favor of abolitionism. And we might still have slaves today and slavery might still be an important part of, of our political system. And again, leaving it up to the majority to decide simply by public opinion is, again, dangerous because it can, you know, the harm that is there can outweigh uh, whatever small harms come out of allowing hate speech to be, uh, be banned. Now, anyways, at the end of the day, the only way to ensure that there is true freedom of speech, true democracy, and a public that debates ideas for the sake of improving them is to make sure no ideas are restricted, regardless of how we feel about them. It's like the musician Tom Morello said, quote, the only bad F word is FCC, end quote. Now, uh, on the other hand, many people argue that there is a certain expectation of respect that is necessary in society in order to make it functional, and hate speech violates that expectation, and that's why we should uh, go on there to, you know, uh, not allow hate speech to be qualified as free speech and practiced openly. Uh, Jeremy Waldron, who's a New Zealand professor of law and philosophy, writes in his book, The Harm in Hate Speech, quote, in a well-ordered society, everyone can enjoy a certain assurance as they go about their business. They know that when they leave home in the morning, they can count on not being discriminated against or humiliated or terrorized, end quote. You know, people like Waldron say, certainly we have a right to be treated as humans, and hate speech, especially in its extremist form, is dehumanizing. Beyond that, hate speech has a tendency to incite mass violence and terrorism. Osama bin Laden preached hate speech about Americans, the KKK preached hate speech against non-white peoples, and Hitler used hate speech to target Jewish, uh, LGBT, and ethnic minorities. Susan, I think I'm going to butcher her last name here, Benish, I think it is, uh, who's the director of the Dangerous Speech Project, um, writes in her paper, Countering Dangerous Speech, New Ideas for Genocide Prevention, quote, By teaching people to view other humans as less than uh, humans uh, and as mortal threats, thought leaders can make atrocities seem acceptable and even necessary as a form of collective self-defense. Hate speech, you know, promotes discourse and disorder in society. It devalues people and makes, as Benish said, some people seem inferior to others, which is the opposite of the idea that all men are created equal. But even when hate speech isn't being used to attack a person or an ethnicity or a race, 
it can still be used to incite mass violence. The Civil War, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Cultural Revolution in China, the Russian Revolution, and plenty more were all fought over ideologies and had varying outcomes, often sparked by extremist language, especially when non-extremist language has worked before in places like India, where Mahatma Gandhi used uh, non-violence to achieve his goals. And there's plenty more historical examples that you can find out there where hate speech was not required in an extremist form to incite violence in order to achieve the goals that were desired. To attack an institution, whether it's a political one, a cultural one, a religious one, or so on, to such an extent that it does promote violence, either in the form of homicide or even suicide in an individual so hurt, is fundamentally wrong. Or at least that's what the argumentation goes. Now consider cyberbullying, which has in many cases led to tragic incidences of suicide. Are those bullies and what they say protected under freedom of speech uh, when it so directly leads to another person's death? Certainly, it was the choice of the person to kill themselves, but to deny such clear links is ludicrous, and to say it's free speech is to give legal protection to people who want to justify homicide with free speech. At least, that's what the other argumentation goes, that hate speech should be prosecuted, and that it's not considered free speech, and it should not be protected. Now, in our legal system, the Supreme Court has upheld hate speech, as long as there can't be clear links to national security, violence, disruption, or chaos. Take the 1969 case U.S. v. O'Brien, where David Paul O'Brien was arrested for burning draft cards in protest of the Vietnam War. The Supreme Court ruled that, contrary to the government's position that his burning of draft cards interfered with their ability to fight the war in Vietnam and thus put Americans in danger, they ruled that O'Brien was simply exercising his right to free speech. In a similar case in 1971, the Supreme Court ruled in Cohen v. California that Paul Roberts Cohen could wear a jacket in public saying, F the draft, or... Well, something similar. Uh, and the 1919 case, Debs v. the U.S., uh, the court ruled that demonstrators protesting World War I was not uh, interfering with the government's ability to recruit soldiers and thus national security. Uh, and they violated the Espionage Act of 1917, which made acts that interfered with foreign policy punishable by law um, so significantly that it undermined their right to free speech. Just because I think I made that a really much longer sentence than it needed to be. The court ruled that you know, uh, these protesters were protected by the First Amendment because they were exercising their freedom of speech and that they hadn't interfered with the government's ability uh, to recruit soldiers and uh, the Espionage Act of 1917, that they hadn't broken those so significantly that it undermined their right to the First Amendment. Now, if we went with that line of reasoning, right, that censorship for the sake of stability and safety is beneficial, then we can reach a point which says that censorship is plenty justified, and that is certainly uh, something that a lot of people believe. One line of reasoning goes that censorship is an effective way to keep this, uh, the peace, especially in times of conflict and when uh, the potential for all-out anar all anarchy to occur uh, poses much greater damage than whatever the short-term censorship will be. In 1798, John Adams passed the Alien and Sedition Acts in order to quell the rebellion that was starting to gain steam in light of the whiskey tax. In order to establish stability, censorship on speech against the government was needed. Um, and it worked. Obviously, because we're all sitting here in the U.S. and you're listening to this podcast. But even more recently, we still operate by similar principles. In light of the Ferguson protest in Missouri, a curfew was set in place to stop excessive rioting at night. Similarly, in Baltimore, a curfew was put in place to stop the violence that was raging on in light of police shootings. Now, I would argue that a curfew is an effective restriction on freedom of speech. You're telling people when they can and cannot express their views publicly. Still, both of those curfews stopped potential anarchy from erupting and created an even more dangerous and hostile situation in those regions. And I think 
that's where a lot of the argumentation that censorship can have positive repercussions comes from. To say that in incidences like those, where we stopped anarchy from occurring, there was long-term benefits, and that those outweighed whatever the short-term consequences of censorship might have been. But I think this does raise an obvious question. How do we define dangerous without creating sort of a slippery slope situation that's prone to abuse? Now, the Supreme Court says that we must rely on the concept of whether or not an action creates, quote, clear and present danger. And that term, clear and present danger, comes from a 1919 Supreme Court ruling, uh, Schenck v. the United States, where the court ruled that Charles Schenck was not protected under the First Amendment in his distribution of pamphlets encouraging people to, if they were drafted for the war, disobey their orders and not report. And the court ruled that his encouragement of people to openly break the law posed clear and present danger and thus was not justified because he was encouraging people to break the law rather than simply protesting it. It's, it's a very fine line, but hopefully it comes across as clear enough that because he was encouraging people to all out break the law rather than simply raising question about it, that that posed enough of a clear and present danger that he wasn't protected by the First Amendment. And that's what the court ruled. Now, similarly, in the 1927 case Whitney v. California, the court ruled that Anita Whitney was not protected under the First Amendment in encouraging people to overthrow the government and establish a communist one, because, again, her actions created clear and present danger in her, direct, uh, in her directly encouraging people to overthrow the government. But then in 1969, the court ruled in Brandenburg v. Ohio that a KKK meeting alluding to the overthrow of the government was not strong enough to qualify as clear and present danger. Really, that term clear and present danger is incredibly subjective, and it means really that we have to deal with the justification of censorship on a case-by-case -case basis here in the United States. Now, on several occasions, namely the um, RAVV City of, uh, City of St. Paul case in 1992 and the 2003 case Virginia v. Black, uh, the court ruled that cross-burning was legal, even though it could be considered targeting Christianity and thus hate speech, but there wasn't enough of a, a clear and present danger there in them simply burning crosses and uh, subsequently protesting a certain sect of Christianity that it qualified for them to um, for them to not have their First Amendment rights protected. And that's another great example of where the court has ruled that hate speech is completely legal. And in the 2011 case, uh, Snyder v. Phelps, the court ruled that the Westboro Baptist Church had the legal right to protest at the funeral of Matthew A. Snyder, an Iraqi veteran who was killed uh, during the war, though not in combat, uh, despite the fact that it was causing the family severe emotional distress because they weren't posing an instant threat of clear and present danger and subsequently uh, were free to protest as they wish, even if what they were saying was horrible and even if what they were protesting uh, on the behalf of was an absolutely awful thing and could easily be classified as hate speech. Again, in the 1988 case Hustler Va Magazine v. Falwell, uh, Hustler Magazine portrayed Jerry Falwell in a less than positive light. He was a pastor and political commentator. Um, and the court upheld that the magazine had a right to mock and parody public figures like Falwell. So continuously, our justice system has upheld the right of people to protest and to express their views no matter the circumstance. Now, the next place that contingencies about free speech constantly arise deal with obscenity. And the idea that if something is so grotesque and obscene like child pornography, it should be illegal. Similar to the argumentation that all speech should be protected when it comes to hate speech, many argue that even obscene speech requires protection. In On Liberty, John Stuart Mill writes, quote, If the arguments of the present chapter are of any validity, there ought to exist the fullest liberty of professing and discussing as a matter of ethical conviction any doctrine, however immoral it may be considered, end quote. Right? 
Um, a lot of people argue that humans are able to make decisions for themselves. And self-censorship, especially in a democracy where we have such a high standard in order for something to qualify as censorship, that that's a reasonable expectation for people to be able to self-censor. You know, if you don't want to see excessive violence, then don't watch a Tarantino film. Uh, censorship is on its fundamental level an obstruction to freedom of speech, and it should never be enacted, uh, regardless of how obscene the material that is being censored is. And that's what the one argumentation goes. On the other hand, if we allow true open expression, we risk our kids developing a poor moral compass, if you will. If we don't outright ban something like child pornography and rely on parents to be able to protect their kids from the innumerable amount of horrid things in the world, or if we simply cross our fingers and hope that kids won't be influenced uh, by them because they for some reason won't be curious enough to try and learn about these horrid things, then we're simply setting ourselves up for failure. Uh, in the 1973 case, Miller v. California, the court created this three-pronged test uh, for deciding whether or not material was protected by the First Amendment. First, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest. Second, whether the work depicts or describes in an offensive way sexual conduct or excretory functions depicts... Uh, sorry... Uh, whether the, let me start over with number two. Whether the work depicts or describes in an offensive way sexual conduct or excretory function specifically defined by applicable state law. And third, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Now, the first two parts are relatively straightforward, asking whether or not the work fits in with social standards of acceptable sexuality, which would, of course, be different today than it would have been back in 1700. But that last part is particularly interesting. At least, I think so. Because it requires us to examine a piece of art, art's a broad term here, of course, and decide whether or not it has value, specifically in four contexts, literary, artistic, political, and scientific. See, after the decision, there was a string of prosecutions that resulted all across the nation in the forced closing of pornography theaters and new dancers and stuff like that. But who's to say that in a culture where what we will consider acceptable in 20 years um, is as unpredictable as, like, Uncle Ken on his third beer at Thanksgiving, that something like pornography, not necessarily child pornography, just regular pornographic films, shouldn't be allowed to be publicly shown, because we can't predict what cultural standards were, will be in 20 years, right? Something like the term acceptable is so subjective, and it changes so often, that it's virtually impossible to put um, a label on it, because it's really all about how society chooses to define something like acceptable, and where they get their morals from. See, some people's morals are born from their religion and from the Bible. Others get theirs from their parents. Others from books or movies or most probably from an accumulation of life experiences. For God's sakes, when the 1953 movie The Moon is Blue came out, it was ridiculed for portraying sex in such a casual manner. The Supreme Court of Kansas banned the film, though the Supreme Court did later overturn that, and the Catholic Legion of Decency condemned the film. It caused massive public outcry for being so racy. The trailer for Mad Max Fury Road showed more skin than that entire movie. It's a great example of how often values like what's acceptable changes. And, you know, at the end of the day, our political system has upheld that people are generally free to say and do things as they want. And it's up to society to have sort of a, an internal litmus test for what qualifies as moral versus immoral. It makes some sense too, right? In a capitalist society, if a theater shows a film that people don't approve of, or a book sells a book that is questionable, our bookstore sells a book that is questionable, uh, then they risk getting boycotted and losing money. We do have a system that holds obscenity in place by requiring people, especially those with the choice of whether or not to distribute materials, to seriously evaluate the consequences. The debate comes in and the question really simply is, is that enough? 
Now, at some point, I do plan to do a whole episode of this podcast on the function of religion, jumping to a new topic, um, in politics and the political system. But in the context of the First Amendment, it makes sense to look at the freedom of it, right? Take something like school prayer. There are two distinct sides to whether or not prayer should be allowed in school, and both cite free speech as the reason why. Um, on the one hand, many people say that a teacher has the right to express his or her religious views, and that if they want to pray in the middle of class, and that is their free speech. They are free to do that. On the other hand, by putting a kid into a position where they feel compelled to pray, or they are where they are forced to learn about a certain religion or something religiously connected, like creationism, that's A, putting taxpayer dollars towards a certain religious perspective and thus using taxpayer money to propagate a certain religion, which is certainly not uh, freedom of religion. Um, and that's what the Supreme Court said in 1948 in the case McCollum v. Board of Education, where they said that schools could not use taxpayer money uh, to fund forced or compelled religious classes. Um, but it also kind of says B, that while a student can... Uh, object to praying or learning about creationism or whatever else it is by putting a student into a position or a child into a position where they could suffer both the ridicule and grade-based consequences for their freedom of religion and choosing to not participate in whatever the religious movement that is being superimposed upon them in the educational system in school, in school prayer is, that that's still a violation of, of their freedom of religion, right? And I'm going to use religions that are parodies of religions here. Uh, for the sake of not offending my maybe one listener. Um, but if Johnny's a third grader and he's put into a position where he has to choose between staying true to his religion, which let's say is Bokenism, to use a religion from Kurt Vonnegut's novel Cat Cradle, or participating in the class prayer and accepting the curriculum at school, which is based around uh, Pastafarianism or the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, then he is being put in a position where he has to sacrifice his own religion for the sake of appeasing his teacher and potentially his classmates, and thus has had his freedom of religion infringed upon. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with those two fake religions, Bokanism and Pastafarianism, uh, they're really interesting religions to check out if you're into the fake religions that mock actual religions. Now, to use an example that was prominent in the news only a few weeks ago, to go away from school and prayer but continue with the religious theme, Indiana recently signed into law a bill that allowed people uh, not to serve other people in their business on the basis of their religious views and what this effectively meant was that a business owner could choose not to serve pizza to an LGBT couple um, if they did not support gay rights on a religious basis. Controversy, unsurprisingly, erupted. Uh, on the one hand, many people accused the law of providing legal protection for discrimination against LGBT people, and furthermore, many said that when a business opened up, they do so in the public arena. They rely on public resources like roads and Many energy companies receive support from the government. If there's a break-in, they rely on the police. If there's a fire, they rely on support from fire, uh, the fire department. And furthermore, um, you know, there is a place for religion, and religion in its expression certainly does have a place in society. But in places where you have a reasonable expectation of a courteous treatment and respect, like in a business, then you have to be, then you have to expect to treat people uh, equally, and you should have the reasonable right to be treated equally and operate under a code of conduct that works towards order and equality. You're very much so in the public arena when you open up a business, and part of that should be absolute equality for all. Discrimination does not promote that agenda, and many said that that law that allowed people to discriminate on a religious basis certainly did not promote that agenda. Religion is for the church and home, right? Places where you go to practice religion. But businesses are a separate entity entirely. Corporations aren't people, and they cannot hold religious beliefs. 
Thus, they don't have a right to propagate their religious views when it results in exclusion. On the other hand, uh, the argument goes that people are free to express their religious beliefs, and that extends into all walks of life. Corporations are built on people, and their belief, uh, and that they are just as much entitled to their opinion as a person is. The Supreme Court upheld that idea somewhat in the recent case Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, where the court ruled that the arts and crafts store Hobby Lobby was a closely held company, and subsequently, given its size and style of management, was able to refuse to provide contraception on the grounds that it violated the company's uh, right to religious uh, beliefs and to practice religion. Furthermore, if you choose to open up business and subsequently, you ought to have the choice in how you run it. In order for freedom of religion to be truly upheld, it must extend to all parts of our life. Here's Indiana Governor Mike Pence being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos defending that viewpoint. Well, let me explain to you. The purpose of this bill is to empower, and has been for more than 20 years, George, this is not speculative. The purpose of this legislation, which is the law in all 50 states in our federal courts, and it's the law by either statute or court decisions in some 30 other states, is very simply to empower individuals when they believe that actions of government impinge on their constitutional First Amendment freedom of religion. And frankly, George, there's a lot of people across this country uh, who uh, you're looking at the Obamacare uh, and the Hobby Lobby decision, looking at other cases, who feel uh, that their religious liberty is being infringed upon. Uh, and, uh, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act at the federal level and all the states now, including Indiana, who have it, are simply about addressing that. This is not about discrimination. This is about empowering people to confront government overreach. There's certainly plenty more things to talk about when we talk about free speech. We could talk about campaign spending and whether unlimited donations to political campaigns ought to be protected by the First Amendment under the notion that money is equal to speech. We could talk about the right of people to protest and how confrontational they could get. And we could talk about the right of the state to control your expression. Things like music volume which was ruled on in the, case, uh, the Supreme Court case Ward v. Rock Against Racism, and there's plenty more. But I actually want to end today by talking about the future of these freedoms. Because in the 21st century, there is no question we are infinitely more interconnected, but that means that people also have unprecedented access to new platforms on which they can express their opinions, whether it's sophisticated online philosophy chat rooms or the, you know, less than sophisticated YouTube comment section. Um... There's two things I want to talk about to end the show in terms of the internet and free speech, and the first is net neutrality, because net neutrality is a lot of things, but at its core, it's the idea that all internet should be equally accessible. In other words, internet providers like Comcast should not be able to block or slow down the loading of one, one website simply because they don't like the content on the website, or to be even more capitalist, because they've struck deals with competing websites to slow down others. If we have net neutrality, then we make sure that nobody's voice is being blocked by big corporations who have control over this kind of thing. But if we don't, if we don't have net neutrality, right, then we keep the internet competitive and we make sure that businesses have the right and the freedom to run their business as they wish, as they wish, which is at the core of uh, our society. There's no burning regulation on them. Uh, you know, burning regulation on them can already hinder business. And... While it may sacrifice the freedom of speech of the people who are using their services, they're the one who chose to give the services, and subsequently, they're the ones who should have the right to practice their free speech as they want and run their business as they want, which is a freedom of expression. On the other hand, many who argue in favor of net neutrality say that we have to accept reality as it is, and everybody has access to the internet. We can't expect the government to provide the internet, so it falls to corporations. But again, corporations exist in the public.
Um, and because of that, you know, people who rely on those services should be treated equally and should be able to express their freedom of speech without it being imposed upon by big corporations. Uh, in Reno v. the American Civil Liberties Union in a 1997 Supreme Court case, the court ruled that the internet was entitled to the same protections as the media and free press. So then it becomes simply a question of whose free speech should we protect? Um, and then in Europe recently, the EU, the European Union, passed a new law dealing with the right to be forgotten. It means that if there's information you don't like about you out on the internet, you have, to some extent, the right to have it removed. Now, the information has to fall into certain categories, like offensive, harmful, or irrelevant. But if you look up some of the cases that have already been removed, it does appear those standards are not difficult to be met. Many say it's a law that should be expanded into the United States. On the argumentation, humans change over time, but the internet does not accurately reflect that change, given that nothing ever disappears. And additionally, there's a humanist argument in favor of the bill, which says that people have a reasonable right to privacy, and the internet violates that at times, often without the full consent or realization even of the people subject to its privacy intrusions. It's reasonable to expect things to be removed from the internet when they are stopping people from being able to move on with their life. But on the other side, many people say that laws like this one in Europe infringe upon the right of speech. Just because somebody posts something about you you don't like doesn't mean you have a right to have it removed. That would be censorship, after all. And that's, as we've already established today, dangerous. Equally dangerous, it puts power into the hands of corporations like Google to decide whose voice will be removed from the internet, as long as they can figure out a way uh, to fit it into a series of vague categories like irrelevant. To paraphrase Harvard Law Professor Jonathan Zittrain on the issue, you have the right to remember things as you want, but you don't have the right to make other people remember things as you want. Both the right to be forgotten and network neutrality are issues that are becoming more prominent in America as the influence of technology in the internet grows, and they're both reading a bit more about, especially if you're interested in free speech in the 21st century. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next episode when we talk about the Second Amendment. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.